You're listening to the Northfield Radio Program, where faith, family, and culture all collide with the biblical worldview. There is a war that's raging for the hearts and the minds and the spirits of men and women. And you and I, as Christians, are on the forefront of that battle. The question is, what will you do? To find out more about the Northfield Radio Program and Caleb Gordon, go to www.calebgordon.com. Hello, my friends. Welcome to the Northfield Radio Program. I am your host, Caleb Gordon. So excited that you're here with me today. As always, I want to say thank you to our friends at Outpost Coffee for providing us with incredible caffeinated beverages. Check these guys out at outpostcoffeeco.com. So on the program today, we're going to have part two of Games That People Play by Pastor Matt Chandler from the Village Church in Dallas, Texas. So I pray that this message encourages you and really just challenges you in your walk this week. How's everybody doing? Okay, Luke chapter 20. Let's get going. Um, There's a group of men and women that follow Jesus, uh, his entire ministry, uh, and they want to have the appearance of godliness and they want to um, um, look like, be respected as uh, men and women of God, but they have no intention of following Jesus Christ. None. They have no intention of following him. They have no intention of submitting their lives to him. They have no intention at any real level of saying, you are my God, I am following you. Um, Instead, they kind of got this external, I want to look good, look right, be respected as godly, but not necessarily be godly. In fact, in one of the dumbest exchanges in the history of mankind, men over and over and over again will choose to have the appearance of godliness at the expense of actual godliness, which is really silly. Um, but, but it's an exchange that people, people do all the time. And so, um, they, they play these games cause they don't want to submit, but they do want to look godly. They begin to play these games with God. Um, and, and we said the first week that there are things that you play games with and there are things that you don't play games with. So like in my house, my son has a Nerf gun, like a legit Nerf gun. It's like a belt fed Nerf gun. Uh, it's a lot of fun to play with. Turn off all the lights. Let's get after it. I give him the single shot one. I take that big one. We run around and. And shoot at each other, which basically means he screams and I blow him up. And, uh, and, and so we play it. That's a fun game. All right. But I also have a 45 automatic. We never, we never play with that one. We never turn off the lights, run around the house and pop off a few rounds. We don't do it because there, there are guns you play with and there are guns you don't play with. Correct. Yeah. There's animals you play with and animals you don't play with. And there's some of you like, no, animals can be trained. I'd just like to encourage you to watch a little show called when animals attack. All right. It, it's always it always starts that way. Oh, they're trained and ends up with a model being mauled by some apex predator while she was trying to sell watches. And so, it, it, no, there are certain animals that were designed by God to be companion animals. And then there were certain animals that because of the fall will now eat you. You don't play with those. You, you don't. It will eventually go bad. Yeah. And, and so there are things you play with. And, and, and there's a big bulk of us that are attempting to play games with God. And so the first game, and, and really the second game that we're going to cover today, has a lot of um, the components of the first game. They're just varied a little bit. But the first game was that when the Holy Spirit, through um, the proclamation of the word or some other revelation, uh, a conversation with a friend, uh, creation, uh, a leading of the Holy Spirit through some sort of revelation, Um, begins to say to us, this is something we need to do. This is something we don't need to do. This is a place we need to go. This is a place we don't need to go. And we don't want to submit to that. Like we don't want to do it. We don't want to do what we feel the Lord asking us to do 
we either in that moment submit and do it or we begin to play the game. And the first game was to redefine or question the authority of Jesus altogether. Okay, and we do that in, in really three ways. And this is what we did two weeks or three weeks ago. Um, the first way is to simply redefine his authority and step away from the biblical historical Jesus and to create your own Jesus out here. And so people do this all the time. They say things like this. There's no way that God would want me to do that. There's no way that Christ would ask me to do that. There's no way that would be his expectation because that would make me miserable. And God doesn't want me miserable. God wants me happy. And so there's no way I can stay with my spouse. There's no way I can leave this job. There's no way I can because God wants me happy. And there's no, okay, I know what the Bible says. I know when Jesus said that. I know that the Bible commands that. But there's no way he could actually want want that for me because what he wants for me is my happiness. And people say that, think that, behave like that all the time. And what they're doing is saying that the Jesus, as God has revealed himself to us in the scriptures, is not the real Jesus. The Jesus of my imagination, of my creation, he's the real Jesus. And he never asks me to do anything I don't want to do, never rubs against the rough spots in my life, and never would demand of me anything that might Pull me away from sin and lead me into holiness. He is an imaginary Jesus who apparently hates you. Because to leave someone stuck in what will destroy them eventually is not love. It's hate. And so if you challenge them on that and go, well, the Bible says, oh, no, 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 no. No, I know Jesus in here. Okay, what's in there? Like, what are you pointing to? Like, in your lungs? Talk to me. Where, where do you? In my heart, I know. Okay, well, what about, since we don't want to just look at the words of Jesus, what about where the Bible says that the heart is deceptively wicked above all things? Not mine. <laughs> Not mine. I mean, you can giggle all you want. Some of you play this game. Not mine. So your heart is good. So your heart knows your imaginary Jesus. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, and, and that's one way we play the game, all right? We just created a whole nother Jesus. The, the authority of the one in the text, forget him, all right? Because we know the Bible's been tampered with and people messed with it and they pulled stuff out of it and they added stuff to it. Everybody knows that. I mean, just watch the Discovery Channel, watch the National Geographic. That was culturally formed by men 2,000 years ago. How could we possibly trust it? So then this becomes a scriptural issue, all right? Despite the fact that there's an unreal amount of textual evidence that says that the Bible wasn't tampered with. Um, we cover this often. I want to always cover it. Um, like the fact that women discovered Jesus' body was missing. Do you know in the first century, a woman's uh, word was not admissible in a court of law? So if you're going to tamper with the Bible, why don't we let some men, some powerful men, find Jesus missing from the tomb? If Peter and the boys started jacking around with the scriptures, don't you think Peter would have pulled out the stories where he's an idiot? (laughs) Come on, let's just talk. Let's just talk here. Don't you think Peter pulls out that part where Jesus calls him the devil? Huh? I mean, how hard is it to preach to the first century church with that story in the text? Huh? I mean, in, in, anytime he says something they don't like, aren't they going to go, didn't Jesus call you the devil? <laughs> Take that story out, all right? Not only that, but you have an unbelievable amount of eyewitnesses' accounts, even up to 100 years after 
um, the, the crucifixion and, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, where in, in multiple locations you have people referencing the sons of fathers who witnessed it I hand, uh, I, with, with their own eyes. So even 100 years later, they're going, ah, talk, talk to Marcus, such and such his son. All right, so there's all this textual evidence that, that, but that never really makes it on the special. I don't know why. Yeah, so that's the first way. All right, the second way, um, and this is, this is kind of an interesting way too. We just redefine the word grace. So historically, grace has meant that you are a God-belittling, God-mocking sinner worthy of the righteous, just wrath of God, but that God in his mercy and grace has extended to you his unmerited favor. Unmerited as it means you didn't earn it. He just gives it to you, Okay. That's what grace has meant. In fact, if you look the word grace up in a dictionary, it will say unmerited favor. That's what it means. Okay? What we've tried to do, because we don't want to submit to the authority of Christ in certain areas of our lives, is we'll just simply redefine grace to mean that God puts up with whatever we do, we do and he just deals with it. And that if we're ever called on the carpet on something, wherever, wherever somebody ever sits us down and goes, what you're doing is sin, what you're doing, it, God says don't do, we, we begin to throw out the what about his grace card. Well, what you've done is you've just mean, you've made hot mean cold and cold mean hot. And that works really well in slang. Oh, that's cool. It's cool? No, that's hot. What? What? No. All right. You've taken the game people play with slang words and you've tried to make grace a word like that and it's not going to work. All right. And then the third, and apparently the one that strummed the heartstrings the most around here was that we barter. All right. And so that means God comes and says, take a step to the left. And we go, there's no way I'm taking that step to the left. So let me do this instead. Instead of taking the step to the left, let me run as hard as I can to the right. So instead of dealing with this one thing, because it's not that really that big of a deal, let me, let me get involved in this. Let me start teaching here. Let me read my Bible more. Let me pray more. Let me do more over here. Let me do so I don't have to be obedient to this. And so what we end up doing is we begin to run in all these things that look like righteous acts, but in the end, they're acts of disobedience because what God was asking was simply this, but you didn't want to do it. And so you end up frantically involved in religion with no real relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's exhausting. And I continue to say religion is one of the dumbest hobbies in the history of mankind. It's just a bad hobby. Now, a relationship with Christ is vibrant, beautiful, and real. All right? Religion, it's a tired way of trying to earn the favor of God. Yeah. And so those are kind of the three ways um, we try to redefine the authority of Jesus Christ. Okay, now the second game has some elements of the first game, but it is a little bit different. And I, I, I've been wrestling with what to call it. I, I think I've just, I guess since I've already preached this twice, I'm going to land on, it's just kind of the change the subject game. Okay. So through revelation, whether that's the proclamation of the word, teaching, reading of the scriptures ourselves, um, some sort of revelation, God begins to lean on our hearts, go this way, don't go this way, do this, don't do that, uh, submit to me here, go here. And we don't want to submit, we begin to play the change the subject game. Let me show you what it looks like. Okay. Let's pick it up in verse 19 of chapter 20. And the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. That's not a nice lay hands on him and pray. That's a, they want to physically harm him. Okay. For, I don't know why I've always loved this line for they perceived that he told this parable against them. Two years we've been in Luke and they're just now picking up that the parables are about them. We're in chapter 20. There's three chapters left. He's told like 14 parables. They're just now going, hey, wait a minute. I think he's talking about us. 
Congratulations, all right? But they feared the people. Look at verse 20. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the ways of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose inscription does it have on it? They said, Caesar's. So he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answers, they became silent. Now, um, this is a tricky text, okay? Um, God has, Christ has said to them, all right, that they are religious, but do not recognize him for who he is and that they need to repent, all right? He has said this over and over and over and over again to them. They have refused to do that, and so they've come up with this question. What are you going to do about Caesar? What are we supposed to do about Caesar? Now, here's the question, and here's why it gets tricky. Um, Rome, at this point in history, rules the world. All right, From India to England, they rule it, and they've supported the army that it takes to rule that last massive landmass with um, taxes. And so there are some historical writings that show and teach us that there's a very strong possibility that the average Jewish household was being taxed between 70 and 80% of their annual income. Okay? So, which is almost ensures that everybody's living in poverty except for the highest level of wealth. Right? So their question is about justice. Their question is about injustice. Their question to Jesus is, what are you going to do? What are we to do about injustice? Now, here's where this is tricky. God has commanded their hearts as individuals to submit to him as God, to confess their sins, repent, right, and follow him. Their response was, but what about injustice? What are we to do about Caesar? What are we to do about Rome? The reason this is tricky is that God is about justice and is about the destruction of injustice. In fact, if you remember back up when we said, here's the gospel at 30,000 feet, we said uh, creation, fall, reconciliation, and then consummation, that we are not beneficiaries of the gospel alone, but we are agents of the gospel, and that God, when all is said and done, is going to reestablish shalom, new heaven, new earth, no more death, no more disease, no more really the reconstruction of all that he designed the universe to be. Now that's coming for us. God hates injustice. In fact, where you follow Christian history, all right, we definitely have our dark moments, but the stories that don't get told enough are that where men have been captivated by Jesus Christ, they have battled and won against some of the most wicked periods of time in human history. Um, At the height of At the height of the slave trade, when idiots in the South were using their Bible to try to unpack that the slave trade was somehow justified by God, a man in Britain named William Wilberforce and a man in America named John Woolman, at great cost to their own purse and their own political careers, fought with every bit of energy they had to derail the slave trade captivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Years later, years later, after the slave trade had been abolished, but racial prejudice 
was still so pronounced in the United States of America that most schools were segregated in the South. It was a gospel-entrenched reverend named Martin Luther King Jr. who began to build steady, nonviolent opposition against segregation and against racial prejudice. We could keep going on this. In South Africa, Bishop Desmond Tutu, he wasn't the bishop back then, but Desmond Tutu fought. You can go on and on and on and on like this. God is the God of justice. So it gets complicated because what they've done is God has said, submit to me, follow me, repent of your sins. And they've said, let's fight for justice. They've changed the subject. Now, here's the problem with having the right mission and the wrong heart. Let me give you some examples that hopefully will pull this together for you. Um, my heart's kind of grieved as I've asked this question this weekend. Um, how many of you have been a part of a church where a pastor, a deacon, an elder, a church leader had a fall of some kind, either because of sexual sin or embezzlement or um, that he just lost his mind? Maybe, I, I don't know. How many of you have been a part of a church where something like that's happened? Golly. Okay, let me explain to you what's happened there. Let me explain to you what's happened. Right mission. Heart that wouldn't submit to him. All right? In fact, they'll even use the mission to justify why they wouldn't submit to him. Specifically, if you're talking about pastors who fall, they tend to do this thing where they go, mm, there's no way I can confess this struggle or this sin because if I did it, then people wouldn't look at me the same anymore and the gospel would be hurt as if all of God's plan, <laughs> plans hinge on one preacher. Like God's going, don't tell him, bro. Don't come clean. This whole thing will fall off the rails. You're that integral to what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll give you some more examples. Let me give you one that'll make some of you email me. Um, <laughs> let me give you this one. Um, you know what happened to the religious right and why they're such clowns and such a joke? Because although they fought for things that might just be just and right, they could not back it up with lives that lived the gospel community that they so desired everyone else to live in. So what ends up happening is you've got a guy that's preaching and proclaiming the need to be moral, the need for this, the need for this, the need for this, while they're sleeping with their aide, emailing inappropriately to 17-year-old boys and having um, affairs with other men in bathrooms in airports. Now I'm pulling this off the news. You see the disjoint? Are you, are you catching the disjoint here? It's a guy that would say, oh, abortion's wrong, and then murder the doctor that does the abortion. There's a disjoint there. There's a, th let's not talk about my heart. Let's not talk about my life. Let's not talk about, let's, justice. Let's have just, let's fight for just, let's rally around a cause that might even be right and good and a cause that the gospel would lead us to while at the same time not submitting our own hearts. It happens all the time. It happens all the time. All right? Like here, I love people who teach the gospel at 30,000 feet. I love people who teach the gospel like there's a creator Loving God who created everything perfect, rhythmic, in motion, fall, sin into the world, fractured those things. Christ is reconciling to himself all things and there'll be a consummation of all things in the future that we are to be agents of the gospel until all things are reconciled at the return of Christ. I love people that teach the gospel at 30,000 feet, but if you never come down to the ground and say you as an individual are a God-belittling, God-mocking sinner, 
that personally needs to repent and believe, then you're going to get this playing out over and over and over and over and over again because you can rally men to a cause, but you cannot transform their hearts. And this is a game people play all the time. See, it's got shadows of the first game, doesn't it? I don't want to be obedient to that, so let me just do all these things. So I don't want to be obedient, so let me just gather all the people I can. Let's fight against abortion. Or um, I, I can't, you know, I don't want to do that thing, so let's talk about it. I mean, what about the poor, Chandler? What about the, and so we don't want to deal with the fact that some of us are proud. We don't want to deal with the fact that some of us are not submitting our lives to Christ. Instead, we just want to take maybe even one of his, you know, his mission and make it our mission without ever submitting our hearts to him. And that's how we play game two. It's a change the subject game. All right. Repent, confess, uh-uh, fight injustice and tithe. It's a change the subject game. All right. Here, here's the second way. It's a, it's a variance of it, but let's, let's look at it. 27. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection, and they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offsprings for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died without children. And then the second and then the third took her, and likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. Um, you think maybe the sixth and seventh brother would be like, no way, man. She's killing them, dude. She's killing them. How can you guys not see this? I'm not married. One got crushed in the great press. The other one got, fell off his camel. I'm not marrying her, man. She's, she's black widow, man. She's killing people. Let's keep reading. 33. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. Now, when I first read this, I thought it was just kind of a silly question. Like, here's what I mean. Um... I've had multiple opportunities to sit in front of crowds and answer questions, hostile crowds, non-Christian crowds, and answer questions about our faith. Usually involves me apologizing a lot and then uh, pointing out their flaws in their way of thinking, all right? Um, The funny thing about skeptics about Christianity is they are far less likely to look at their own belief system and just attack ours. And and so it's it's really not very difficult to go, actually, we're doing what you're saying better than you're doing. And so, but I always, I've never done it where I haven't got this question. You ready? It's usually like a 20-year-old kid who comes up to the mic and goes, can God make a rock so big he can't lift it? (laughs) Right? Do you see what he's trying to, it's a little philosophical game. Because if he could, then God's not all powerful. And if he can't, then God's not all powerful. Right? It's a philosophical game. All right, that has no genuous of heart, no actual seeking, no, it's a silly philosophical question that I always just say, that's a silly question. That's a silly question. Um, I, I thought this was like that. I thought this was a silly, and then I got married. <laughs> and then, you know, like if something happens to me, like immediately following the 11 o'clock service today, I've got to hop on a plane to Austin. I'm doing a wedding tonight of a dear friend of mine. And so hopping down there and she's finally getting married and we're all excited. And so wife and kids are already down. I'm jetting down to do the wedding. And then um, say something happens to me on the flight down there. And then Lauren, my wife is an extremely attractive woman. And I put some man repellent on her, three kids. All right. But I still think that I still think, I mean, she's beautiful. And so some dude in the store would be like, oh, oh, three kids. All right. Leave her alone. And so, um, 
I'm assuming that at 29 and beautiful, even with our three well-behaved children, that some man's going to try to snatch her up. And my question is, when all said and done, like when we're all in glory, is that awkward? (laughs) You know? Hey, Lauren. Who's that? (laughs) I mean, is it awkward? How is it? And then they're just going, what if that happens seven times? And if it's awkward with two, how awkward is, who's that, who's that, who's that? And they're all my brothers. All right? I mean, how awkward is this moment? So I, I think it's a legitimate question about a issue that's very personal to the Sadducees. It's an area of doctrine. It's an area of theology. It's something that Jesus has clearly taught on that they don't like. And so they've got this little area and they're saying, answer me this question. All right. It's a, I will not submit to you as God unless you answer this the way I want you to answer it. Um, and that's the other, that's the change the subject game. Because what will end up happening is God will confront us and confront our hearts about our own lives and our own hearts and where we stand. And instead of dealing with that, we'll pull up an issue that's important to us and go, I cannot submit to you because of this over here, this over here, this over here. And God's going, oh, no, no, I'm talking to your heart right now. I'm not talking about a secondary issue. And so people all the time will feel the call from God to submit to him and instead They'll pick an issue, whether that's role of women and men, uh, whether that's homosexuality, whether that they'll pick an issue that's usually close to them because of family and friends. And they'll say, I can't submit to you over there because I know that this is where you land over here. And eventually you're going to take me and want to uh, work on me about this. And I'm not giving that up. And so we decide not to follow them at all because we've got this thing that we don't want to let go of. Happens all the time. It's a game we play. All right. And so what we do is because we want to have the appearance of godliness, we'll stay close to church. We'll stay close to. But in the end, we have no intention of beginning to give our hearts to him because we know he's going to want to talk about this. That's the second game we play. Now, Jesus's response or his answer to this question about resurrection is very interesting. He basically just said, well, let's just read it. We've got our Bibles open. Thirty four. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain the age and to the resurrection from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Now, if that's confusing to you, there's a great book called Momentary Marriage written by John Piper um, that might be able to shed some light on that. Um, Don't squeeze your husband's hand right now and go, no, baby, no, I want to be married to you in heaven. Uh, or some of you are like, yes, freedom. All right, but let's keep reading. All right. But the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord, listen, the Lord of, present tense, the Lord God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. See, all three of those were men who had died, but Moses was speaking of them in the present tense. All right, all right. Now, he is not God of the dead, but he's God of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. But I want you to see how he confronts them back with a question. Look at this, 41. But he said to them, How can they say that Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how can he be his son? Let me make 
this very, very easy for you. Jesus is saying, since you want to talk about a topic, let me remind you of this. David called me Lord. I have always been, I will always be. You could even go to that last two, three chapters of Job where God says, where were you when I built the mountains? Where were you when I hemmed out the riverbeds? Where were you when I, he's saying here, I'm God. How in the world, in your limited, culturally informed brain, are you going to grasp how I designed the universe to work? And I'll continue to say for all the accusations made against us as arrogant and ignorant, it's humorous to me, all right, that we are, all right, our culture at large has become so arrogant as to believe that we are right now, our culture alone, at the pinnacle of human progression and what we think is right and good and acceptable should be the norm for all, despite the fact that the rest of the world does not line up there. Like, take 9-11. 9-11 was a horrific reminder that religion matters, And that religion shapes and moves the hearts of men all over the world. All right? Where everyone on our news stations and everyone on our television channels is trying to tell us that religion is on its way out as a dead, outmoded, out, soon to be dead, dying idea. The rest of the globe says that's nonsense, including parts of the Western world where religion is on a crazy upswing specifically in europe god designed the universe to work a certain way all the commands of god are lining us up with how he designed the universe to work he's not even like when paul is when paul is pressed on even the role of men and the role of women paul doesn't paul doesn't pull an argument from culture he pulls an argument from creation God has created it like this. Whatever that thing is for you that you don't like what the scriptures teach on, you don't not, God's not trying to take from you. And, and listen, I'll, I'll say this. I'm not pretending that being obedient to Christ is always the easiest thing in the world. Please don't hear me saying that. Now, I will give you this. For some people today, some of your brothers and sisters in Christ, to be obedient is a life and death decision for them. To be obedient to Christ could involve them being killed, their families being killed, their... That's happening, okay? But you live in Dallas. Man, you don't even live in Dallas. You live in the suburbs of Dallas. I mean, what can happen to you here? You can accidentally get a second golden retriever. I mean, what? (laughs) I'm I'm kidding. There's horrible things that can happen in the suburbs. In fact, it might be more dangerous spiritually because of the slow descent to hell that it is. What I'm saying is the obedience to Christ for us here is rarely this weight that falls on our heart where it could cost us everything or it feels like it could rip out our personhood. And the hope we have in the triune God of the universe is that all his commands and all his leadings are leading us to life and not begrudging submission to his power simply because he could command what he wanted to command. Our response is one where we confess that we've done it to the Lord and we ask for forgiveness and we repent, we stop, we do that thing, whatever that thing is he's asking us to do. This program has been brought to you by DSR, a technology company that has been investing in Bartles of a Families for over 35 years. DSR, we deliver technology.